Let's pray and ask for God's help for me in us all. Father in heaven, we pray that with the confronting teaching we've read, that we will hear explained and applied now, that you might give us soft hearts and minds that are teachable, ears that are open and willing to listen. Please enable me to speak words that are clear and true and faithful and helpful. We pray that by your spirit you would work in all of our hearts and change us to be more like Jesus for the glory of your name, Father. Amen. Well, you'll find an outline of uh, this sermon uh, and a transcript of what I'm going to say online at bpc.org.au slash live if that's helpful for you. Dealing with conflict and, or oh, sorry, dealing with difficult people and dealing with conflict at work or school is an experience that all of us are familiar with. We can identify with it. There's the lazy co-worker who takes credit for our work or the lazy student who just wants to copy others' answers. There's the nightmare boss who blames you for their mistakes and rarely acknowledges your contributions. There's the childish person or the sleazy person who's unpleasant to be around. Maybe there's that infuriating client who seems impossible to satisfy or the thoughtless and selfish person who puts others down to make themselves feel good. How do we respond? Andrew Laird, first slide up please. Andrew Laird in his book, Under Pressure, how the gospel helps us handle our pressures or the pressures of work. He says, one, we can move away and uh, avoid the person as much as possible. Or two, we can move towards the person and attack, get mad, get even. Or three, we can love our enemies and lean in with love. And that's really different, really distinctive. So come with me as we look today at Jesus' teaching on how we love others distinctively in our promise-keeping, our not-retaliating, and our enemy-loving. In the Sermon on the Mount, we've been considering what the distinctive life for Jesus' followers looks like. We've seen it means being salt and light, a source of good in other people's lives. We've been summoned to display righteousness. And yet we've heard that we don't get righteous by rule-keeping, but by relying on Jesus. And yet, our righteousness by faith in Christ, it really is expressed. It's expressed and shown from the heart in us living rightly and loving others. Even when it comes to things that, or people that make us angry, or as we heard last week, even when it comes to things that would tempt us sexually. Today we see that righteous living includes a distinctive love, a love for God and for others that includes us keeping our promises. First point, promise keeping. It's hard to keep our word, our word to others when our own happiness matters most to us or when it costs us to keep our word. It's hard to keep your word when you're waiting for a better offer. It's hard to keep our promises in marriage when 80% of couples don't even make public promises before moving in together, when over a third of marriages, sadly, are ending in divorce. But in verse 33 to 37, Jesus calls us to be people who keep our word. Verse 33, his reference to not breaking oaths 
It's not a direct Old Testament quote, but it comes from various scriptures. So there's links to the third commandment and the ninth commandment. Numbers 30 verse 2 speaks about how vows and oaths must not be broken. And an oath is a solemn or serious pledge or promise to do something. You, and you solemnly swear that something is true and you invoke the name of something supreme or sacred to give credibility and to confirm what you've said is true. Like we read in Leviticus 19 verse 12, God said, you shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. In Jesus' day, people, it seems, were swearing oaths very easily and that they started to think that they could actually swear falsely and lie as long as they didn't swear in God's name or swear upon God's name, as long as they avoided using God's name. A bit like, I think, kids thinking that they can cross their fingers behind their back and therefore not speak the truth, or I can tell a lie as long as, long as my fingers are crossed. But Jesus is saying no. Jews would swear by heaven or by earth, or it seems by, even by their own head, but Jesus is saying no, all of creation is God's. Don't think that you can swear by earth or heaven and leave God out. And don't think that God doesn't hear. In the words of one writer, if you've got good eyes, otherwise listen, in William Barclay, he says this. I think it's really helpful. Don't think God is involved in certain compartments of our lives and not others. So we have a certain kind of language and behavior for church and another kind for the shipyard, the factory, the office, the school, wherever you spend Monday to Friday. God does not need to be invited into certain departments of our lives and kept out of others. He's everywhere. He's all through life. He's in every activity. He doesn't just hear all the words spoken in his name. He hears all the words. We'll regard all promises as sacred if we remember all promises are made in God's presence. I don't know if that convicts you. Jesus calls people to be honest, to tell the truth, to keep our promises. Verse 37, he's saying, if you say yes, let it mean yes. If you say no, let it mean no. From verse 34, there's been Christians in the past and today who've refused to take oaths like swear on oath in a courtroom. But in Matthew 26, the high priest asks Jesus, he says, by the living God, tell us if you're the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus answers, yes, it is as you say. And there's other references to oaths from the Apostle Paul in the outline. And so Jesus is not actually forbidding us taking oaths, especially if required by the authorities. He's against abusing oaths. And Jesus is saying it should never be necessary to swear an oath. Our word should always be reliable. Do you always keep your word? When I preached on this passage two and a half years ago, I confessed to failing to always do what I told my wife, Kirsty, I would do. And, and as I reflected this last week, 
I feel I've made some progress, but I still fall short. And I fail to do what Jesus asks me to do here. I don't know about you. But out of love for God and our love for others, our Lord Jesus says, our yes must mean yes. It must be people who follow through. Are you someone who says yes then makes excuses, even forgetting? Are you someone who deceives, tells white lies, exaggerates a bit, even on social media? Jesus says my people are honest, promise keepers. But as well as loving people by keeping our word, we also love them by not retaliating when they hurt us. I do enjoy watching movies for some downtime, and a big theme in many movies is revenge. Whether it's Jennifer Gardner in Peppermints, James Bond in Quantum of Solace, Star Wars, Revenge of the Sith, or I was reminded by one of my kids, Thor taking out Thanos. Uh, I won't give more details, but wanting to take revenge, it's something that comes easily, naturally to us, doesn't it? We can so easily want to pay that person back for what they did to us, retaliate when they, when they hurt us. And our second point is no retaliating. We should long for justice. Seeking justice is a good thing. Our God is just. But the trouble comes when we take matters into our own hands. And I've heard many religious and non-religious people quote these words here in verse 38, eye for an eye, as a justification for getting even with that person who hurt me. Some have even said, I'm an Old Testament person, Clinton. One place it's found is in Leviticus 24, 19. And two things must be remembered about teaching here. Firstly, however prescriptive it was, it was also restrictive. So suppose someone cuts off your brother's hand and you go and knock the guy's head off. Immediately, the violence has escalated. The man's family may feel honour bound to butcher you and your whole family. Where will it end? We see it today in wars between clans and tribes and gang violence. But if instead... The initial act of violence is met with a punishment that fits the crime. Eye for an eye, life for a life, then that's the end of the matter. Secondly, the law was given to the Jews as a nation. It was not designed to be discharged by individuals who are swept up in anger and fury and personal vendettas where people take the law into their own hands. It was meant to be acted on by judges and courts but people then and now were using the scripture to justify getting even taking others to court all fostering bitterness vengeance hatred and the lord responds with sweeping authority but i tell you do not resist the person who's evil jesus is not asserting global pacifism. He's not wanting to put a stop to all police forces or armies. He's not talking about the responsibilities of governments at all. The Bible says the state ought to punish the wrongdoer. 
He's talking about private and personal retaliation. He's addressing the so-and-so cheated me, they hurt me, and I'm going to get even. Just wait till I get even. Jesus gives four examples, four illustrations of enduring love. He says, "Versely, verse 39, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other also. Turn the other cheek, famous words. This probably refers to a sharp backhanded slap which hits the person's right cheek and it's used to insult someone in that culture. So it's more an insult than an assault. In other words, Jesus is saying be willing to endure repeated insults and don't retaliate. That's God's job, not yours. God is saying give up the right to retaliation. Don't think of your rights. Follow Christ's example. In your family, when, when you don't pay back your brother, your sister, your spouse, even verbally, but when you seek whoever it is, that other person's good, then your love and your commitment to Christ will stand out. But what if you're suffering persistent bullying at school or, or abuse from a parent? spouse or another person Jesus says don't retaliate don't hit back please please do though run to safety seek help please do tell someone tell someone in authority John MacArthur says to report a crime is an act of compassion, righteousness, godly obedience, where you seek the offender's good and repentance. To belittle, excuse, or hide the wrongdoing of others is not an act of love but wickedness. I agree. And if we're witnessing an attack or abuse, Jesus is not commanding us that we shouldn't protect or arrest a third party I'm not to attack an evil person who's attacking me, but yet out of love for my neighbour, we'd argue that it is loving to resist and stop an evil person who's attacking someone else. I tell my boys that God has given them their strength to protect and provide for others. Jesus is not forbidding us defending our families or bringing wrong, wrongdoers to justice. The principle is don't retaliate out of personal vengeance, but respond with love. Verse 40 is about a lawsuit where a person is likely to lose their clothes. And Jesus says, if you're sued for your shirt, give them your coat as well or your cloak as well. And this blows me away because I was reminded this week in my studying that people only had one cloak. People only had one coat. And Exodus 22 said, the poorest person has the right to keep their coat, their cloak. And Jesus here is saying radically, be willing to give it up, to surrender it. Wow. The principle is, even those things that we hold to as our rights, we must be prepared to give up. And so Jesus is not just saying there's to be no retaliating he goes further and calls us to be giving. Same in verse 41. 
This refers to a Roman soldier who's commanding a civilian to carry his bags or be his guide. And Jesus' followers were not to feel hard done by but, or angry, but to double the distance and accept the imposition cheerfully. And when we're, when we're robbed of some freedom, Jesus is saying, be willing to surrender even more rather than retaliate. What radical love. In verse 42, Jesus says, give to the one who begs from you. Do not refuse the one who borrow from you. Verses 39 to 42 are not justifying abuse by any tyrants, beggar or thug. And yet it demands giving and lending that is cheerful and willing because we love. Trouble is we dislike giving up things that belong to us, don't we? We think our money is ours, mine. Even as Christians, we can forget that all we have has been given by God and we're only stewards of it. So even the right to use our money as we wish should be placed on the altar of obedience to Christ. Doesn't mean that we should or must always give to every professional beggar or family member who asks for money and who wastes it and keeps asking for more. But should ask, how can I love this person in action and follow through? Because God commands that, that we work to provide for ourselves, our families, our, rel- our relatives... You, your mother, your mother-in-law, we should provide for them and for the church and for gospel ministry. But God also says that we should provide for the poor, those who are going without. So please don't explain away Jesus' teaching here, this call to love generously. Let it challenge you, convict you, change you. This is hard and confronting. It is for me too. It's about us giving up our rights, not giving paybacks, but generous love instead to those who don't deserve it. Will you pray for such a heart and a desire? And what might you do practically to obey Jesus here? So distinctive Christian love, it includes promise-keeping, not retaliating, but giving, and now thirdly, enemy-loving. Verse 43, Jesus says, You've heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbour, hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. Now, Leviticus 19, it commanded a love for neighbour. But some Jewish teachers had limited who neighbour is to fellow God-fearing Jews. And yet in the parable of the Good Samaritan in in Luke 10, Jesus has made clear that our neighbour is anyone we come across in need, who we're in a position to help. And here Jesus ratchets it up further. It's even harder. (laughs) Love even your enemies. The word for love here, agape in Greek, 
describes giving yourself for the good of another, whether they deserve it or not. This love, it's more about action than it is emotion. More about action. And a love for others in your workplace can be distinctive and powerful, but really hard. Many of us know the experience of being insulted at work, the nasty remark which still gets back to you, the hurtful words said in your he- when you're hearing, when your work is demeaned before others, when credit's given to someone else or, or Christian views are despised. Tim Keller says, helpfully, turning the other cheek is the mark of the person who's hoping for a relationship, hoping that this difficult relationship might change for the good. And so instead of avoiding that difficult colleague when you arrive in the morning at work, make a beeline for them. You lean in with love. You smile at them and ask a question about their day ahead. We might offer to help a difficult colleague with something or offer a positive comment about what they do. To return evil for evil is normal. Jesus is saying, verse 46, verse 47, to sinners, they return, they return good for good. Yeah, people look after and love their own friends, but to return good in the face of evil, that is different. That's the way of God. That's the way of godly love. I'm realizing that I don't know how hard it is for most of you, many of you, to live Christ-like lives in today's school and world and workplace. Things have changed so much, even in the last 20 years and and 10 years. I realise that in Australia, sexuality and gender is at the heart of people's identity. And the LGBTI agenda is pushing a different gospel to us. And your Christian views are likely to be insulted or shut down. And Christians can and will be left ostracized, defriended, even unemployed. And yet we love our enemies by continuing to speak of Jesus, of the forgiveness he brings, by continuing to speak of how God's purposes, creation, are good. How God's purposes in marriage are good. A great book that I'm still reading with the other elders at Bundy and the staff is this one, Being Bad, Being the Bad Guys, How to Live for Jesus in a World That Says You Shouldn't. Worth reading. Steve McAlpine there encourages us to be like Daniel, fearless as you live a life of faithfulness and faultlessness. Fearless, faithful, faultless before our enemies. And I share this quote. If you are the conflict resolution woman in the office, if you're known to deflect the boss's praise to others, if you help colleagues when they're struggling with their workloads, if you're slow to gossip and quick to point out people's strengths, if you constantly offer support and perhaps prayer to the troubled or the grieving, 
If you share meals and conversation with everyone from the janitor to the manager and are as quick to go out to lunch with the gay couple from marketing as you are to nip off to the office prayer meeting, then when you fall into deficit over hard cultural matters, let me add, like the HR department is wanting you to promote and support the LGBTI agenda or the Rainbow Day, when such things happen and you resist, then the king, your manager, will be conflicted over whether to punish you, just like King Darius was regarding Daniel. What would for you, what would prayerful love look like in your workplace? Yet having been told to not retaliate and to love, we can't do it. Having said all of that I've said, we can't do it. If you're like me, reading Matthew 5, every time I read it convicts us of our sins and shortcomings. I mean, look at verse 48 right at the end. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That is summing up Jesus' teaching in verse 21 to the end. And love is at the heart of it. And our God is sinless and generous and loving and perfect and oh, so often I'm not. But there is one human being who was. There is one man who came to save us. You see, Christ did it. Jesus Christ was perfect as his heavenly father was and is perfect. In 1 Peter chapter 2 from the NIV, we read this about the Lord Jesus. He committed no sin. No deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. Remember when the Jewish police spat on him, struck him, abused him, shamed him, and when the Roman soldiers all followed suit, he didn't retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him, to God, who judges justly. Jesus lived a perfect, sinless life of love in our place. And then on the cross, the Penalty for our sins was placed on him. And it says that next verse, verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, the cross, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. There's such good news here, brothers and sisters. For we fail to love. We're so far from perfect. He has forgiven all of our sins when we have believed and trusted in him, in the Lord Jesus. And now as God's forgiven people, as God's saved children, the plan is, God's intention is, his command is that that we would die to sins and live for righteousness. In other words, God has saved us so that we would be like him, that we would live like him, display his qualities, his love, be like him. And back in Matthew chapter 5, verse 45, Jesus is actually saying the same sort of thing. Here in Matthew 5, verse 45, Jesus is giving us the reason, the motivation to do what he's been saying. 
For he, God, makes his sun rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. God loves all people. He shows common grace to all rebellious sinners, giving people good gifts, sunshine, rain, food, water. And God is asking us to love our enemies like he does. In fact, God loves the sinners of the world so much he sent his one and only son so that we would not perish but have everlasting life. And God's love is shown to us Christ's people even more, isn't it? My favourite passage in the Bible is from Romans chapter 5. And in verse 8 we're told, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. And look down at verse 10. When we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him. When we were God's enemies, we've been saved and set free because and through because of and through the death of Jesus. You see, God the Father, God the Son have loved their enemies, and we've been saved and set free to be like God. And so why obey what Jesus says and love those who are hard to love because we're loved? Because you are loved, Christian. I might have hairy arms and legs like my father, and I fear I've passed that on. But you and I, we're meant to be like our heavenly father. Love generously. Brothers and sisters, our Father says, be like me. As I close, I acknowledge that so often the enemy can be someone close to us. Our school, our family, our home. And to our enemies, whoever that is or might be for you, sometimes our words can just tumble out, hurling criticism spewing hostility at the person, those words words which can sting like killer bees and which sometimes can be sealed forever in the memory bank. James Dobson says, love could begin with us choosing to hold our tongue and remove ourselves from a provoking situation. He says to parents, communicate kindness to your oppressed and harassed child, even to those who are sullen and depressed. I'll be facilitating a Paul Tripp marriage course at the end of April, Tuesday night for five weeks. Details to come soon, but I hope if you're married that you will join us online for that. And then, Lord willing, we hope to run a Paul Tripp parenting course uh, in August. And Tripp says many helpful things including from that book, Age of Opportunity. He says this regarding our teenage children. I think it applies even when your kids are younger. He says, Cutting hurtful words will come flying out of their mouths. Laziness, irresponsibility will be revealed. They will respond in selfishness rather than love. And each of these experiences is an opportunity to bring our children to the one place of hope and help, the Lord Jesus Christ. But so often we get up, get caught up in our own hurt and anger and instead of speaking words of grace and hope, 
we lash out with angry words. Whether you're a parent, a child, a spouse, or whoever, let's hear what Jesus says to us today. All of us, in all our relationships, if we're followers of Jesus, he says we need to not retaliate. Instead, let us close our mouths, listen, reflect, and pray that we would respond in love and then decide to respond in love. Our Lord who who loves us has called us to promise-keeping, not retaliating, and loving even our enemies. And by his grace, we can. Let's pray. Let's pray we'll do that. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the love that you show to the people of this world, the majority of whom just ignore you and disregard you and sin against you. And Lord Jesus, you've loved us so much that you gave up your life for us. So Lord, I pray that you'd fill each of us afresh, whether we're in this building or watching online. If we know and trust in Jesus, convict us, encourage us again with a deeper sense and knowledge of your love for us. And that may that so fill our hearts that it overflows in love to others. Whether those difficult people to love, whether those enemies are in our home or in our school or in our workplace, or it's our next door neighbour, we pray that by a work of your spirit and your grace in us that we would live distinctive Christ-like lives for the good of others, for the glory of your name, Father. Amen.